Welcome to Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Adam Verrier, and today's show brings us to Whitehorse Yukon Territory, where I'm sitting with Peter Steele in his living room. I've known Peter for many years, and I've always been intrigued by his history of adventure as an explorer and as a mountaineer. Peter Steele was born in 1935. He grew up in London and was trained as a surgeon, but his love of mountaineering and exploring had a big influence on the path that his life would take. He spent a significant portion of the 1960s working as a doctor on various expeditions in the Himalayas and in Bhutan. He was the team doctor for the failed 1971 International Everest Expedition. In the mid-1970s, he found his way to Whitehorse where he started a medical clinic and he's lived here ever since. Peter Steele is an author who's written several wonderful books about his adventures. I interviewed Peter soon after reading his book, Eric Shipton, Everest and beyond. So, Peter, thank you very much for having me here in your living room. Uh, we've known each other for for a while, uh, but uh, and I've wanted Many to years. yeah, I've wanted to talk to you for a while about about your adventures. Uh, I've known something about them uh, from uh, uh, knowing your reputation as an author and uh, speaking with with Lucy, who's been a friend of mine for thirty years now. At least uh, that years. I'm glad to finally be able to have this interview here with you in your living room. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. So, uh, Peter, you, could you take a moment to just introduce yourself? You're a, you're a doctor, you're a mountaineer, you're an adventurer. You started life uh, on, the other half, on the other side of the world. Yes, I, I, I lived in England for most of my life until we came over to Canada. I mean, I traveled other places as well, but um, I was basically English up till 1975 oh. when, we, when we immigrated. And in 1975, you immigrated to, to Canada here? Yes, I, okay. I, I, I had been in training in plastic surgery in Britain, and the field was very narrow. We knew it, it was a pyramidal thing. And you knew that a lot of people were going to shed, shed on the on the way up, and um, I knew that I wasn't going to make it in to the final to get a job in plastic surgery, which is what I wanted. Huh. And so, did you become a general surgeon? I, I started off doing general surgery and, and eye surgery. And why was plastic surgery so so difficult to get through? But it. It's a fascinating subject. Um, it, it had a fairly small, about 40 of us senior residents and um, a lot of junior residents coming from abroad filled up a lot of the spaces. But um, I, I just realized that I'd been messing around too much <laughs> while my other colleagues and friends had been climbing the ladder. <laughs> okay. And uh, it had caught up with me, and I thought, well, I, uh, my wife and I decided I'd had connections with, with Canada because I'd worked in Labrador. I ran the International Grenfell Association um, Hospital for Northern Labrador for a year and a half. Okay. And um, I, uh, my wife, Sarah, um, was a nurse, and uh, we, we thoroughly enjoyed that. We thought, well, we'll, 
we'll, we'll travel across the country and see what see what comes. And so we set off in a little jalopy, and um, eventually hit Vancouver. And I happened to have a friend um, who was doing anaesthetics, and in a place called Whitehorse. And I had no idea where Whitehorse was, but I wanted to look up my friend. And I got him on the phone and he said, um, well, why don't you come up for the weekend? So um, I thought, well, may as well. I have no, no intention of going to live up in the north. And um, lo and behold, 30 years later, here I am. <laughs> You said that you said earlier that you uh, you weren't uh, the career you were having a you could see that the the career wasn't really going to progress uh, the way some of your colleagues were because you were spending all your time messing around. Uh, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Right. <laughs> so when you were in England, you were uh, what were the what was this messing around? You were getting into mountaineering. Well, I started. I, I went to an outdoor bound school when I was quite about 17 years old. This is in Eskdale? Eskdale, yes. And where is that? Uh, it's up in the Lake District of Britain. Okay. A lovely, lovely place. And the, the Autobahn School had been going for quite a number of years. And when I went, Eric Shipton was the warden. I said that that was my first contact with Eric, uh, which I will come to a bit later. Were you a teenager then? Um, I would have been late teens. Okay. Yes. Uh, and I, I did very well on this course and thoroughly enjoyed it. It was introduction to climbing and, and I did my first rock climb with, with an instructor and I, I sort of felt really good about it. And then I was due to go up to Cambridge University. And so it, when I was 19, I, I, I went to Cambridge uh, as an undergraduate in Clare College. Is this, is this? Yeah, 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 this is very interesting. And um, yeah. I was, uh, joined the Cambridge Mountaineering Club and it was very strong at that time with leaders at the head of the, the gang. And we started climbing um, in, on rock outcrops in Britain. And then we were, ha, had meets in, in, in the Alps and uh, with a bunch of, of friends who were equally enthusiastic. And we, we went to the Pyrenees. We did a bunch of really difficult climbs uh, for beginners and um, fell in love with the Pyrenees, went over to the Alps and started climbing in the Alps. This would have been in the mid-50s? This would have been in the late 50s. Okay. Um, yes, it would be uh, 59. Okay. Um, One thing I read about uh, in your book about Shipton, which we'll get to a little bit later, uh, was uh, that when Eric Shipton was the warden of the Eskdale Outward Bound School, uh, <laughs> You send, send, send kids off uh, on these adventures, and I think uh, after, after uh, uh, kids at the school had gotten a little bit more uh, familiar with the outdoors, you'd go out on these kind of pretty aggressive adventures. Uh, yeah, you know, go out and... Camping out 
on the hills with a bunch of boys who had never been near a hill before. It was, it was quite. Well, it was a big adventure for me at the time. One of the things that I read about that I thought was interesting was the uh, this after dinner uh, that you'd have this. There was the quest, and that was see how far away you could get from the school by any means and get back. Yeah, that was a wonderful thing. Um, we set off. We had forty-eight hours to, to go as far as we could from the school, with only a few shillings of money in our pockets. And you were unrestricted in the method of travel. It didn't matter hitchhike, <laughs> which is what most of us did. We got nearly up to Glasgow, <laughs> and uh, I turned around, and we arrived back just in time to qualify for. The um, having done this rather funny outing. Yeah, it sound. I get. I got from that example that Shipton was really trying to encourage adventure and maybe going further than uh, beyond the horizon. He was. He had. A, a, he was very quiet, very, very self-contained, but he had a very clear idea of what was going to fire up boys. And um, he let the instructors get on with it, and he sort of managed things from the distance. And he was he was he was wonderful. It was it was marvelous to meet him at that time. We didn't realize at that stage, of course, how how famous he was. That he already was, I, know, I, I suppose, among adults. It was he had just been turfed out of the leadership of the 1953 Everest Party. Um, and so he was a bit at a loss for himself. But he was a very, he was a very gentle man, a very nice man. And I, I later on in my life, I got to know him much better, and got to know him quite intimately um, when he was in London. And I used to go and have curry lunches with him <laughs> and talk about Everest. And, and of course, he was just like, having a, a, a history book of a mountaineering presented to you uh, of all the, because he had been on, on four of the previous expeditions to Everest. And that's what got us quite excited. So as a, as a student, uh, how many students were there and did, were, were there few enough that you had some contact with Eric Shipton even as a student? Yeah, uh, but, but uh, I think there was, 80 or 90. Yes, a distant contact, but um, he, he was very isolated. I mean, he was very polite and always very nice to the boys. I liked him immensely. So you were at Cambridge and you got into the mountaineering club and the climbing club. That's right. And, and uh, you were taking these trips down to the Alps, and it sounds like they just, this was something uh, that that obviously fascinated you and something you wanted to do a lot of. Yes. The Pyrenees, yes. the Alps. Yes. And uh, so you were climbing a lot during your I, college I was years. climbing to quite a, quite a high standard then. <clears throat> and with a bunch of wonderful friends. And uh, any chance we got, we would rush off up to, from Cambridge up to the Derbyshire where they these short climbs over a long distance, and uh, it uh, it was a very happy time. 
And, and when you made it down into the Pyrenees and the Alps, how long were these trips? Were you able to make longer, longer, were you able to, to, to be down there long enough to do lots of climbs? Yes, or were they, yes, that, that okay. basically were, most of them were, some, some of them, we had bivouacs uh, on a few of them, but most of them were, were not one night over. Okay. And did you have enough time to go down into the Alps or the Pyrenees and, yes, and spend a, like a month or two months down there climbing? Yes, or was it Okay. I'm very happy month. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then coming back uh, from these trips and getting a getting a degree a degree and becoming you then became a doctor. I managed to scrape up the my, my medical degree. Um, which I could have got a much better one if I had been a diligent student <laughs> instead of rushing off to the Alps. And so you had this career. It sounds like you may have had two competing interests here. You had a career, uh, yes. which you must have felt some obligation to yes. to get on with. Yes. Uh, and at the same time, uh, it sounds like you were passionate about, about the mountaineering and the rock climbing. And uh, then, so. then, of course, I met Sarah. Okay who had, uh, just happened to bump into each other at a, at a wedding of a friend of ours. And we ha had, um, I gave her a ride down to, I had an Austin Healy 3000, and uh, I gave her a ride back down to London, cause she, and discovered then that she was working a nurse at the same hospital as I was at, St. George's Hospital, Hyde Park Corner, okay. right in the very heart of London. And um, she, her, her father, she'd been brought up in Cyprus, and her father had been a very good mountaineer in, in, the, in the French Alps. And um, uh, he, so she, she, she took to climbing very easily, and she was very good, actually, but very lazy. <laughs> which was a good thing. He said very good, but very lazy. Yes. And in what way? Uh, in what way was she lazy? Uh, she, um, she, she, what wasn't? Uh, it was easy to to get her to come climbing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and she already, uh, I guess, she already had some climbing experience when she first met you because of her dad and. Uh, very, very little. Very little. Yes. Okay. But she was certainly receptive. Uh, uh, she knew something about climbing. Uh, and that's right. Her dad was sort of delighted that. His daughter was going to marry a climber. <laughs> that uh, you know, in reading your your book about Eric Shipton, it sounds like uh, uh, the 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 dads of of a lot of Eric Shipton's girlfriends felt the opposite way. That that's the last thing you would want to do is marry a climber. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So Sarah's uh, Sarah's folks felt felt the opposite way. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You. So, so clearly, this uh, meeting Sarah was uh, was something that uh, was going to make doing a lot more mountaineering easier because you had a, a partner who was uh, who was interested in That's this. That's right. Did you go on a lot of trips uh, climbing with her then? And not so much because I was uh, interning and and I, I buckled to and was a very keen intern uh, at St George's Hospital. And um, then I can't remember how it came about, but we met a couple. Barry Bishop was one, 
um, who had just come back from Nepal. And uh, this other doctor. Um, and Sarah and I, I had just, just qualified. And Sarah and I um, got talking to them and they said, oh, why not go out and work in Chantapan Hospital in Kathmandu? So I wrote to them and said, would you be interested in having an intern resident? And um, they said, find your way here and we'll look after you. And this was fueled by just your interest in going there, just yes. because of the things you had heard about it. So we got hold of, we got hold of a Land Rover and we drove out, took three months to drive out to Nepal. From London? From London. What, how, did, did you, you, uh, where was, how did that route go? You, you went down through Europe? Went down to, to Istanbul. Okay. Across, through Syria, down into Beirut. Sarah had a sister who was working as a, the wife of a diplomat in, in Beirut, in Lebanon. Then we, we spent about a week there, and then we, came across through Iraq, up and over the mountains into Iran, climbed Mount Demavent, uh, back down Shiraz, crossing over the southern um, the, uh, part of, of, of Iran okay. into Afghanistan, Pakistan, and then arrived in Kathmandu <laughs> and promptly sold our Land Rover to the um, hospital, which they used it as an as a ambulance. And so we had enough money to, to go traveling when we, when we, when we left when, at the end of the year. When you were, okay. And the, the drive itself must have been an adventure. Oh, it was a I huge mean, adventure. You must have been figuring it out uh, as you went. We knew roughly where the route ran. Okay. And um, we met a couple of wonderful New Zealand boys, also driving Land Rover. And um, in 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 Persia, we met them. And we we teamed up and travelled together in order to. Um, it was safer because of crossing us some fairly large deserts, with no assistance whatsoever. And was uh, was there also some criminality out in the deserts? Like, could you get robbed? Not at all. We had not, never had any the slightest problem. Huh. And of course, every single country. I mean, you can rattle the names off of all the troubled countries of the last ten years. Every single country has since been impossible to do that journey. Right. Right. And we. And we. I say it took about three months, and uh, hmm. uh, it was a great, great adventure. And so you were working then. You were working in Kathmandu. I, I worked in Kathmandu as an as a intern. And did you have uh, time to explore then while you were there, or were you pretty much having to we, stick? We planned there? a trip at the end of our time. Sarah and I wanted to go um, way out into the west of Nepal, and. Um, so we gathered up a whole lot of um, boys who would come as porters. Uh, we, there was a team of about six of us. And uh, we set off 
and um, had a marvelous journey into the west of Nepal. I wanted to climb a little mountain called this, but when we got there, it was the big mountain was too difficult for us. And then Sarah discovered she was pregnant, and um, so she came back home, and I went over the passes and came around the north of Dalagiri and um, to Muktanat. And from Dalagiri, I, uh, when I got down to Joma's home, um, I was so keen to see her that I ran for 20, 48 hours, almost without stopping, <laughs> and, and found her in con in Wisconsin and quite happy and well yeah. in Pokhara. <laughs> How many? And this was this was the. I'm two sorry, I'm rattling off. No, no, the names of places. It's, <laughs> yeah, no, this is that's fascinating to me because it sounds like just such uh, such an adventure, and, and especially at that time, uh, you know, it wasn't long. It wasn't it wasn't long prior when uh, a lot of these valleys were being mapped and discovered yeah. by people like Shipton, uh, who was the, the yeah. warden of the school that you went to. Um, and actually, when when we were working in Kathmandu getting ready for our little expedition. Um, I call it an expedition, but it was a trip, really. Uh, I met Norman Darenforth for the first time, and he was with the American expedition that had climbed Everest. Barry Bishop. Did you know Barry? I didn't know. But um, no. Barry, Barry and Luke. And, okay. um, and I, that was a, a fairly important part in, in the story because later on, not very much later, but in 1971, um, Norman had this fantastic idea of climbing the southwest face of Everest, which, uh, uh, with an international expedition. Okay. And he was looking for a doctor. And I met him again. And he said, well, would you like to come, come and be doctor to the International Expedition? And so in 1971, when you were invited uh, as the, the team doctor on the International Expedition, That's right. where were you then? You were in London? Uh, I, was in, I was working in, in, in London. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And had you, been, uh, had you been doing a lot of mountaineering? No, in... I'd, I'd, I'd done much, much less. Because I was actually quite a keen young medical student then. Yeah. And um, Sarah was nursing to get her degree in nursing. Okay. And you had uh, at least one child, two children at that point. Um, we'd, well, then I, I had been off to, to Labrador and we um, adopted Judith. Okay. She's a Newfoundlander. And... Uh, then Lucy came along, and, okay, and right. then we were living in at that time. We were living in in Bristol. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so in '71, you got invited uh, as the team doctor on this 1971 International Everest expedition, That's right. which was supposed to be. Uh, of course, Ed Ed Hillary had uh, had climbed the mountain in 1953. 53. Um, 
And, and actually, I'd like to get back to the 71 expedition, but first, uh, the way that came about, Eric Shipton seemed to be, in the, in the late 40s and the early 50s, Eric Shipton seemed to be the undisputed expert of, I mean, he was the... He was the guy who was doing more climbing in the Himalayas than anybody else. That's right. Uh, and it seemed clear that Eric Shipton, if if a if if the mountain was going to be climbed, that Eric Shipton would be part of that group. It would seem, because he had exactly. he'd been over there since what the nineteen thirties. The thirties. He was did four four expeditions to Everest. And during the thirties, and 30s, didn't really enjoy it. Is that right? Yes. And why didn't he enjoy it? Oh, I think they were too big for him. He, okay. he, he and Tillman had climbed a lot together in East Africa, and um, just the two of them, and he, he, he loved going with what, just one person and a friend or whatever. And uh, being part of a huge rampaging bunch was not his thing. No. And it was then that I... I I forget when we were going to we were going to climb some mountains in in the Sahara, and um, I I got in touch with Eric and I didn't know him as Eric then. Um, he his he li uh, lived in a apartment in a basement in in Chelsea in London, uh, and so he said, "Well, come." meet me to the World Geographical Society, and we'll look at some maps together. And uh, so I did that. And that was the start of a friendship that, um, uh, I call it a friendship, but, you know, I, I was just really, he was godlike to me. Right, right. Uh, he had such a reputation in the... He was a lovely Himalayas. man. How did he... You said that he liked smaller trips. He'd like to go with Tillman or some other competent climber that he liked traveling with, but not these enormous expeditions. Right. But how would somebody back in the 30s, like Shipton, fund all these trips? I mean, yeah, he wasn't making much money. He had a farm, I think, and in I, they, Africa. They, they were called fairly heavy grants from the Alpine Club and the Royal Geographical Society. And that, that's usually how they were funded. Usually through a big newspaper like the Times. Okay. And that's where the, the main part of the money came to run those those big trips. And where was the mot? I mean, obviously, the 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 motivation behind the newspapers is pretty obvious. Right. Uh, but what's the motivation behind the the geographical society or the, uh, uh, the the clubs in England to explore that part of the world? I mean, it was part of the empire, I suppose. Very much part of the empire, and because um, most of these people, the people who are on it, on these big expeditions, were English English people. Uh, and it seemed like they were the the premier climbers of uh, they, they of were, the thirties and forties. And I suppose that's and just. And then then he met met Ed Hillary by sheer chance, and um, and, uh, and a telegram came from the New Zealand president of the New Zealand Alpine Club saying, four New Zealanders, he Eric was with four Englishmen. Yeah. Um, going to climb, going to have another look at Everest. 
and um, so he said, Do I send any two and they can join us. This is in 1952, I believe. This would right? be a bit later than that. Okay. And um, so he, he uh, immediately got in touch, with, got friendly with, with Ed Hillary, who adored him. And um, and when the expedition leadership for 1953 came under, um, he was bumped. Right, that all was happening in in England, in in, in London at the time. I guess they were trying to decide. They had a permit. The English had a permit. That's right. And I believe the next year, the Swiss or the French had a permit. And it had it had to be done in in a, and so they they wanted a more military type of leadership. Okay. And got John Hunt. Because Shipton's style was too 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 casual. Too casual. So uh, and and Hillary ended up uh, at the uh, as the first uh, summiter of of, uh, of Everest. Yes. Uh, but it sounds like Eric Shipton had done a lot of the groundwork, if not most of the a groundwork. Lot of it. And he and Ed Hillary got on very well together. Hmm. As you, in the beginning of the um, Shipton book, there's that letter from hmm. from Ed, Ed, Ed Hillary saying how much he had he had enjoyed. His friendship with Eric Shipton. Their age difference must have been about 20 years at the time. Uh, at least 20 years, yeah. yes. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment with more Outdoor Explorer. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes Store or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. listening to Outdoor Explorer, and I'm Adam Verrier. Today I'm in Whitehorse, Yukon Territory, and I'm speaking with Peter Steele about his adventures in the Himalayas and on Mount Everest, and about his friendship with pioneering Himalayan explorer Eric Shipton. So you said earlier that Shipton really preferred smaller trips. I think he enjoyed them more. He was a little bit more of a cat, had a, a more casual uh, approach to mountaineering than the siege type mountaineering that was uh, that was prevalent and I get the impression that mountaineering has changed considerably over the last 80 years 100 years from these trips uh, in the 30s especially where you hired half the country to work as porters exactly. and, and you brought all these people Certainly. Uh, and but Shipton never was really a fan of that uh, he, 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 well, he, he didn't enjoy that side of it <clears throat> do you th- do us? Do you think Shipton was he primarily in the mountains for his own enjoyment? I mean, it was just something I think that he so, liked yes, to do. Yes, because when <clears throat> he sort of went out, when when it, losing the leadership of the Fifty Three Party, 
to John Hunt was a great blow to him. And he went off to, to South America and, and climbed in the Patagonian Alps and um, did all sorts of some of the hardest climbing of his life when he was a, near, a man of nearly, nearly 50 years old. And at that yeah. time, I guess the climbing down there was unimportant oh. as far as reputation. Yeah, absolutely. Very few people had been there and done, any, and he did all sorts of really exciting climbs, as you can read. Yeah, and, and he was and doing he it for himself because nobody else really cared and about. He, it. And he just had one, one or other. Tillman came along on one of the trips, okay. and he had a lot of much younger people, yeah. <clears throat> but he he managed to keep up and be as, as strong as any of them. So these large trips that were happening in the 30s, how many people would they bring? They would bring hundreds of porters? Is that accurate? They, ever, in the area. Everest or those types of... Yes. You know, Shipton certainly had to bring... He had to bring some porters. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, there were certainly no, there a lot were, of material. There would be hundreds of porters. Okay. Because yeah. a lot of his trips, I think, were geographical uh, surveys. They, they, that's what they turned out to be, yes. Okay. And maybe that was, uh, for the Geographical Society, that was the reason to do the trip. But for Shipton, it was just a way to get funding to go and do what he wanted uh, to do, which was root around you, in the You mountains. hit the nail on the head. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So uh, and so, there was a lot of equipment that need to be needed to be uh, needed to be carried, uh, yeah. and of course uh, they weren't using freeze dried food back then. Uh, so the the style of those trips was extremely different. Yes, very different. Was it? Do you think it was Do you think it was necessary to to have such large trips back then, or was it sort I, of a tradition that maybe? I think it was a tradition. Um, and in a way, you could understand looking at Eric Shipton, wondering if he should, he would be a good leader for the uh, for the for this one chance to climb Everest. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I think, think they they thought a military man with very carefully organised would more likely to. I mean, Eric was so casual with everything. Right. And this is going to be a lo logistically a really complex. Uh, yes. You were trying to, uh, and I think the word is siege. You yes. would, you would, uh, you would attack the mountain. And in fact, in reading uh, about about Eric Shipton in your book, uh, I think you used the word too that that they were saying that we're going to attack the mountain, and yes. and that uh, Eric <coughs> Shipton never he never liked that. That always. Uh, uh, it wasn't his style at all. No. Uh, so they had a military, John Hunt, as the, mil as the leader, yes. because he's a military guy. And he did a very good job. Yes, and I think in the, in, in the book, uh, there's a reference to Eric Shipton saying later, well, you've, uh, that this, he, he was, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, that, that he said, well, this is probably the right guy uh, yes, for this type Eric, of... Yes, Eric would say that. Yeah. And I felt very lucky to have... And then, so in the, as the years went on, uh, I, I became quite friendly with him, and uh, I used to visit him in this apartment in the basement of a rather, rather lovely little street in Chelsea, and we'd cook up uh, curry dinners. 
and just talk about mountains. And I, I've, I felt immensely uh, privileged to have become a, a, a friend of his. It seems like, like in your life, you have made a lot of adventures into, uh, you've gone a little further than most. You've kind of gone over the horizon many times, working in Labrador, uh, ultimately coming here to the Yukon Territory and Whitehorse to live for the last, the last 30, 40 years. Well, it's been more than that, uh, since 1975. Um, traveling uh, with Sarah uh, by car to the Himalayas. Um, it strikes me that Eric Shipton, ever since your, since meeting him at the Outward Bound School, uh, may have been an inspiration for the type of travel that you like to oh, do. Oh, he, he was a complete inspiration. I, I always sort of dreamt of doing things like, like Eric would. So it seemed to me in reading your book that, Shep, that, that Eric Shipton was maybe even more interested in, in exploring what was up the next valley or what was over the next mountain range than climbing the peaks himself. You, you've hit the nail right on the head. Um, that he was more of an explorer he, he, than a climber. He was much more of an explorer. He technically wasn't a particularly good climber. Um, I mean, he was perfectly adequate, but but he was exploring that really fired him up and hmm. the things that he loved. And, and down in Patagonia, he they went some absolutely desperate climbs uh, <laughs> or traverses yeah. of whole ranges, um, largely in because in appalling weather, right, and with pretty dismal food. I mean, uh, but um, that's what he was best at and what he was happiest doing. Yeah, and it sounded like with that. A cl with a close friend or close, just a couple or four, four people. Mm. Yeah, it sounded like that was the primary difficulty in South America. It wasn't the, the climbing so much as the weather, that well, you were just getting the blasted. The weather is terrible. Yeah. You had no. Uh, you had an invitation to go to Bhutan, but you yes. had no no reason. And, and so I was going to do a gorgeous survey across the country, and I said, "Well, I, I must. I I can't go by myself because my wife will, uh, wants to come with me." And the king said, "Well, that was that was fine." So anyway, I I, I got a grant from the Royal Society to, to do this survey. Okay, and. Um, we started in the very west of Bhutan and worked our way. To, it took us nearly f five months. It's not a huge distance, but we would go to a village and examine people for the goiter okay. and treat them with iodized oil, injections of, <clears throat> of oil carrying, holding um, iodine which could then be used for the thyroid gland. Was there a lack of iodine in people's diets, or what was it, the In cause? all of those mountain countries, you, you will, from that time, find people who had coiter. Okay. And in fact, there was not as much as I'd expected to find. Hmm. But it was, it was a fascinating journey. And, and so we, we would go for... Uh, Week or two weeks, then move on to another place. And how were you? How were you traveling? Were you traveling by foot? We, 
had ponies to carry the um, uh, uh, trunks. Okay. And um, uh, I was walking, and, and Judith, uh, Sarah rode with Judith in front of her. <laughs> right, because Sarah was, and, or and Judith Adam was. Adam was on a, on a pony by himself. Okay. And, um, and how so old was Judith at the time? She was a year and a half. Okay. Adam was three and a half. <laughs> and uh, so after five months, we'd, we'd, I think, made the first crossing of the, of the entire country by a European. Really? Yes. Did you enjoy the trip? Loved it, yes. And how did you, uh, were you getting local advice on how to travel to the next place? Were you no, figuring we out as you went? Or? We, we were seconded to a, uh, a young 18-year-old um, Bhutanese boy named Chimmy Wongchuk. And he completely took us over. And he has remained one of my closest friends ever. Hmm. And even now I hear from him once, once or twice. Uh, a month we te we cross uh, letters. He he can write reasonably understandable English. Yeah. Okay. And he's living uh, in Bhutan. And he and he was over. That's a picture of him up there. Oh yeah. Um, he was here. We, we went out, and he has been here. Okay. And that was taken in Bhutan. Hmm. Uh, in uh, when I went back there with Judith and Adam. Yeah. To redo some of the journey. Huh, that must have been... It was, now, a, it was an adventure of a, of a lifetime, it really was. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, um, Lucy told me, your daughter, uh, whom I've known for 30 years, because uh, we were skiing together, uh, when, when, uh, when Lucy was on the Canadian national team in cross-country skiing, uh, she told me that you, at one point, I think you lost all the ponies in a, in a flooded river. Uh, oh, we had a horrific time. Uh, towards the end of the journey, um, we were up in the mountains, and um, it was the beginning of the monsoon, and we got, just got caught by the monsoon. And this valley um, that we, there was the only way we had of getting out of uh, and back down to the south of Bhutan um, uh, was was hit by landslides, and it was it was extremely unpleasant. Um, but Chimmy was absolutely wonderful, and we had another a Sherpani okay. um, girl of eighteen who came to look after Lucy. Uh, Sarah. After um, Judith. Oh, Judith. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Forgetting which <laughs> right. my children it was. <laughs> right. Um, and the, the, the whole journey, which isn't in fact very long, took us, took us about five months. Yeah. So we were able to spend two weeks in a place and get to know the people very well. Okay. And Chimmy Wangshuk was with us all the time and he would take care of any problems yeah and he was he was and he's become one of my closest friends and did your uh, did your goiter samples make it because I think you had samples did oh, we, those make it back or we had uh, had a very complicated way of getting 
our samples back to England, um, they were to be taken down to the border, taken to Delhi, to the airport in Calcutta, put on a plane, sent to London. And this worked quite well to start with. And then when we got into this Kurchu Valley, um, the, the great landslides that carried the, the, the road away completely, there was no path. I and mean, the path was just wide enough for a mule. And, um, and we, we had all, all these blood samples were in a, in a tin trunk. And it got caught on 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 the edge of a jetting out piece of rock, and fell down the mountainside. <laughs> and it was held up by a tree. And one very brave little man climbed down and collected this blood, and brought it up. And of course, all the, half of the samples had been broken. Yeah. And blood was coming out of this trunk. <laughs> and, and so it was a um, rather horrific scene because they thought something, some awful thing had, had gone on. <laughs> well, I want to skip ahead a few years to your, uh, to your involvement in the 1971 uh, International Everest ex Expedition that uh, Norman Dierenforth, right, right. Uh, uh, that he... And so you, you knew uh, Norman Dierenforth from... Uh, I didn't really know him. I mean, I just met him once. Okay. And um, uh, does the name Barry Bishop mean anything to you? I've heard the name, but I... Barry was a, yeah. a, a very good American climber. Okay. Um, uh, that Barry introduced us to Norman uh, a second time. It, he was in London. And he, he, he let... Announced that he was looking for a doctor for this um, team, and um, as I spoke Nepali quite fluently, oh, and uh, yeah. um, uh, he, he said, "Would you be interested in coming?" And so I, I was a, a very amateur compared with the, they selected climbers from 11 different countries. Yeah. Um, so it had the sort of creme de la creme. Um, and that's how I got on to, to being doctor on the air. Uh, and it, it was fascinating. Um, but it, as you probably know the story, it, it, bad weather and one of the Indian climbers died on, on the way down. Yeah. And um, I, I was able to, to help a little in that and I had a, a fairly good arrangement in a little hospital that I built. Um, and, and was that, that was in base camp? In base camp. Okay. But I was up in at the foot of the big face on Mount Everest. Okay. Is that, Don, was that Don called? Don Willans and Dougal Haston were the two climbers who eventually got within striking distance of the top. Okay. 
how far did they make it up to the to the uh, North Coal or oh, way, way, way above? Way above. Okay. And uh, they were going up the face, so the, f- oh, the right. North Coal is over here. Okay, they were going straight up the right, the Diretissima, as they yes, call it. Yes, okay, yeah. Um, and what was your role there as the team doctor was to be as as close to the action as possible, but still in a place where you could run a small uh, hospital. Uh, uh, yes, there were actually two doctors. There was a, a young doctor, of, uh, Amer- an American, who was very keen, and he was a good climber. Okay. So, um, uh, in the end, it seemed more suitable that he should look after the climb on the face when I was down trying to look after the rest. Of okay. And, and what was the the purpose of this trip? It was called the International uh, the international Expedition. Yeah. And I think the idea was that, that typically these expeditions were run by the English or by the Swiss or by the French right. uh, or by the Americans. And, and this was going to be a, a climb where Norman Dierenforth was going to bring in a couple of climbers from all these different uh, right. groups. That's right. You're right. And what was the uh, what was the motivation for that? Why do that? I mean, why was that important? I think it was just Norman had it had to be done in a different way to, to what's what had been done before. Okay. And it was quite. A, I mean, he had chosen the best climbers mm. from about ten different, eleven different countries, and. Um, so it was it was a wonderful group to be with. I mean, they were all fascinating people. Was there competition on the mountain when when they actually when when this when it started coming under stress and you were actually in in, in bad After weather? After the death of Haguna, the Indian okay. climber, um, the thing began to fall apart. It seemed like some uh, some climbers. Uh, so, so the, the it, it, Italian and French climbers left. Okay. Um, they left in protest. They said, we don't want to be a protest. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And you had two groups. And I was lucky. I mean, if if there had been an ex- a success, someone would have written a successful book. <laughs> yeah, was, um, that, that was no success for me. And uh, I wrote Doctor on Everest. Okay. Yeah, it's a book I'd like to read. I haven't, uh, I haven't read it, uh, but I, I think uh, that sounds really interesting because it seems to me that under the, under the the high stress conditions of bad weather and high altitude and and competition that that uh, these types of climbers have, uh, that keeping a trip like that together would be, would be tricky. Uh, it was. It was very tricky. And you had, I think you had groups going, uh, you had the group going up the Diretissima, but also the and, uh, southwest. Going up to the West Ridge. The West Ridge. Yes. Yeah. I went with the West Ridge people. I went up to, to about Camp 4, which is about 24,000. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you're way up on the mountain then. Yes. Uh, what uh, were there any lessons uh, you think that were learned from that from that expedition? Anything good or anything bad that happened? You said this was that that countries had been running their own expeditions, and this was uh, an opportunity to try just let's just get good climbers together, and and uh, and so that it's not a a team of, of people from one country or another country. No, it was a shame because the, in the beginning everyone got on extraordinarily well. 
And it was only when, after this rather disastrous fall that Hush Baguna died, that, um, and we were caught up in the big western coom of Everest for about two weeks in a storm. Okay. Um, and this is when things started to fall apart. And the western coom is high enough that it, how high is it? It's about 19,000. Okay. Uh, 21,000. So after being stuck there, I, I, I assume that gave some people time enough in their tents to think, I don't think I want to, maybe I'm, exactly. maybe just, I'm done with this. Just, just that. Huh. So I've, I've seen that, that climb described as a, as a failed expedition. Do you think it was a failed expedition? Oh, I think it was pretty well. It was. Yeah. In, in, its, in its inability to reach the summit, but no, also... No, just, just in the thing fell apart. It fell apart and, <laughs> and everybody went home on their own. <laughs> everyone went home on their own. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, after all this Himalayan climbing, uh, you, uh, you eventually, uh, you ended up in Labrador. Uh, you've said early in, the, in our discussion how you ended up in Whitehorse, uh, traveling across the country, another adventure, traveling across Canada, getting to Vancouver, and then finding an excuse to come up to Whitehorse to check it out. And then what was your reaction when you got here? Uh, I mean, you, you came here just to take a look around, and I, you've been here ever since. And they were looking for, for uh, someone to work in the medical clinic, and I started off the medical clinic and then eventually uh, we broke away and Dr. Alan Merritt and I started uh, a Clonlight Medical, which is a very small clinic, okay. which I thoroughly enjoyed. And what uh, did, did you initially think that you'd just be here for a short stint and then leave or were you I, just... I, I thought we'd be here for a couple of years. Huh. And we did in fact Sarah and I both decided we'd, after I retired, that we'd move down to Victoria. Hmm. And we did, and we bought our house on the notion. And uh, I couldn't get settled in. And I <laughs> turned around and came back to Whitehorse. Because you enjoyed living here. I love living here. What is it about the Yukon or Whitehorse? Is I, it? I think it's, it's small enough that you do get to get to know a lot of people, it's uh, it's it's a wonderful place to live. I really love it. You have a you spend a lot of time on Atlan Lake. Yes. I think. Uh, how did you discover Atlan Lake, and and what is it about Atlan Lake that you like so well, much? I, I had a sailboat down, and um, I used to do a lot of solo sailing. Um, and gradually it became more and more difficult being on my own. For those for those who don't who are listening to this who might not know might not know where Atlan Lake is, it's, it's kind of behind Juno, isn't it? It is between Whitehorse and Juno. Okay. Yeah. In British in northern British Columbia. Northern British Columbia. And it's a huge lake. Oh, it's a huge, huge lake and the the Juno ice fields come down to the southern end of it. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, so it's kind of behind Skagway, oh, it's below yes. south of Skagway, really. Between Skagway and Juno, yeah. up on the Juno Ice Cap. Huh. Well, um, I think that brings us about to the end of our hour. And 
I have really, really enjoyed uh, talking with you. And for me, it's been a it's been a window into uh, something that we can easily read about uh, in your books and and other books. Um, but to talk to somebody who's had these experiences, I just think it's uh, it's fascinating talking to somebody who who hasn't been afraid to to go over the horizon and go into areas that you've never been before, uh, where there's even not a lot of maps. But it sounds like like Eric Shipton. Uh, reading his book, it just I saw the real parallels uh, between Eric Shipton's passion for adventure. And uh, and it sounds like he must have been an inspiration for you. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been lovely. <laughs> Wasn't it as nerve-wracking as I thought it would be? Uh, for me, it is. <laughs> You've been listening to my conversation with author, doctor, and mountaineer Peter Steele. Eric Bork produced today's show. Thank you so much for joining us here on Outdoor Explorer. My name's Adam Verrier, and I'll see you outdoors. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, The Man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.